Book Three, Part Nine of A Confederate Girl's Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Confederate Girl's Diary by Sarah Morgan Dawson. Book Three, Part Nine. October twenty second to November tenth, eighteen sixty two. Wednesday, twenty second October, Linwood. We left Clinton this morning and have just now arrived by the cars. Charlie came in last evening to our great surprise, so we did not scruple to leave Lily. The Baton Rouge party returned late this evening. In spite of all preparation, Gibbs was horrified at the appearance of home. Friday, October 24th. A letter from Jimmy, the first we have received since New Orleans fell. It was dated the 10th instant, and he spoke of being on the eve of running the blockade and going to Liverpool to represent our unfortunate navy, as he says, though I am at a loss to imagine what he can mean. He speaks of a kind friend, a Mr. George Trenholm, whose kindness has been perfectly extraordinary. He has befriended him in every way. Charlie has just come by the railroad, bringing other letters from him to Mother and Lily. In Mother's is his last good-bye on the twelfth. Again, Mr. Trenholm is the theme. I could not help crying over my dear little brother's manly, affectionate letter. He says he is sure God will still care for him. He has raised him up friends wherever he has been. He says he lost all his clothing in going to Charleston. There, among other kind people, he met this gentleman who carried him to his house, where he has kept him ever since, treating him like his son, and forced him to accept a magnificent outfit as a present from him. He procured the appointment which sends Jimmy abroad. I wish Jimmy had been more explicit concerning it. We hardly know what it is or how long it will keep him. The money he received to pay Jimmy's passage, received from the government, he in turn obliged Jimmy to accept, as he sails in one of Mr. Trenholm's steamers, and, not satisfied with that, gives him carte blanche on his house in England to be filled up with any amount he chooses to name. Mother went back to Clinton with Charlie that evening to my great distress, for she hates that odious place as much as I. I know the life will kill her if it lasts six months longer. How happy I would be if it were not for the thought of her uncomfortable position there. Lily agrees with me that, once out of it, she never wishes to see the vile place again. Margaret says that when the Lord had finished all the world and all the people, he had some scraps left and just thought he'd batch up Clinton with them. Perhaps she is right. Sunday, 26th October. This place is completely overrun by soldiers passing and repassing. Friday night five stayed here, last night two more, and another has just gone. One last night, a bashful Tennessean, had never tasted sugar cane. We were sitting around a blazing fire, enjoying it hugely, when in answer to our repeated invitations to help himself, he confessed he had never eaten it. Once instructed, though, he got on remarkably well, and ate it in a civilized manner, considering it was a first attempt. 
Everything points to a speedy attack on Port Hudson. Rumors reach us from New Orleans of extensive preparations by land and water, and of the determination to burn Clinton as soon as they reach it, in revenge for the looms that were carried from Baton Rouge there, and which can soon be put in working order to supply our soldiers, negroes, and ourselves with necessary clothing. Of two evils, if Baton Rouge is to be overrun by Yankees and Clinton burned, I would rather await them at home." Sunday, November 2nd. Yesterday was a day of novel sensations to me. First came a letter from Mother announcing her determination to return home, and telling us to be ready next week. Poor Mother! She wrote drearily enough of the hardships we would be obliged to undergo in the dismantled house, and of the new experience that lay before us. But n'importe, I am ready to follow her to Yankee land or any other place she chooses to go. It is selfish for me to be so happy here while she leads such a distasteful life in Clinton. In her postscript, though, she said she would wait a few days longer to see about the grand battle which is supposed to be impending. So our stay will be indefinitely prolonged. How thankful I am that we will really get back, though. I hardly believe it possible, however. It is too good to be believed. The nightmare of a probable stay in Clinton being removed, I got in what the boys call a perfect gale, and sang all my old songs with a greater relish than I have experienced for many a long month. My heart was open to every one. So forgiving and amiable did I feel that I went downstairs to see Will Carter. I made him so angry last Tuesday that he went home in a fit of sullen rage. It seems that some time ago, someone, he said, told him such a joke on me that he had laughed all night at it. Mortified beyond all expression at the thought of having had my name mentioned between two men, I, who have thus far fancied myself secure from all remarks, good, bad, or indifferent, of men, I refused to have anything to say to him until he should either explain me the joke, or, in case it was not fit to be repeated to me, until he apologized for the insult. He took two minutes to make up a lie. This was the joke, he said. Our milkman had said that that Sarah Morgan was the proudest girl he ever saw, that she walked the streets as though the earth was not good enough for her my milkman making his remarks. I confess I was perfectly aghast with surprise, and did not conceal my contempt for the remark, or his authority either. But one can't fight one's milkman. I did not care for what he or any of that class could say. I was surprised to find that they thought at all. But I resented it as an insult as coming from Mr. Carter, until with tears in his eyes fairly, and in all humility, he swore that if it had been anything that could reflect on me in the slightest degree, he would thrash the next man who mentioned my name. I was not uneasy about a milkman's remarks, so I let it pass, after making him acknowledge that he had told me a falsehood concerning the remark which had been made but I kept my revenge. I had but to cry milk in his hearing to make him turn crimson with rage. At last he told me that the less I said on the subject, the better it would be for me. I could not agree. 
Milk, I insisted, was a delightful beverage. I had always been under the impression that we owned a cow, until he had informed me it was a milkman, but was perfectly indifferent to the animal, so I got the milk. With some such illusion I could make him mad in an instant. Either a guilty conscience or the real joke grated harshly on him, and I possessed the power of making it still worse. Tuesday I pressed it too far. He was furious, and all the family warned me that I was making a dangerous enemy. Yesterday he came back in a good humor and found me in unimpaired spirits. I had not even talked of curds, though I had given him several hard cuts on other subjects, when an accident happened which frightened all malicious fun out of me. We were about going out after Cain, and Miriam had already pulled on one of her buckskin gloves, dubbed Old Sweetie from the quantity of cane juice they contain, when Mr. Carter slipped on its mate and held it tauntingly out to her. She tapped it with a case-knife she held, when a stream of blood shot up through the glove. A vein was cut and was bleeding profusely. He laughed, but panic seized the women. Some brought a basin, some stood around. I ran after cobwebs, while Helen Carter held the vein, and Miriam stood in silent horror, too frightened to move. It was indeed alarming, for no one seemed to know what to do, and the blood flowed rapidly. Presently he turned a dreadful color and stopped laughing. I brought a chair while the others thrust him into it. His face grew more death-like, his mouth trembled, his eyes rolled, his head dropped. I comprehended that these must be the symptoms of fainting, a phenomenon I had never beheld. I rushed after water and Lydia after cologne. Between us it passed away, but for those few moments I thought it was all over with him, and trembled for Miriam. Presently he laughed again and said, "'Helen, if I die, take all my negroes and money and prosecute those two girls. Don't let them escape.' Then, seeing my long face, he commenced teasing me. "'Don't ever pretend you don't care for me again. Here you have been unmerciful to me for months, hurting more than this cut, never sparing me once, and the moment I get scratched it's, "'Oh, Mr. Carter, and you fly around like wild and wait on me.' In vain I represented that I would have done the same for his old lame dog, and that I did not like him a bit better. He would not believe it, but persisted that I was a humbug, and that I liked him in spite of my protestations. As long as he was in danger of bleeding to death I let him have his way, and, frightened out of teasing, spared him for the rest of the evening. Just at what would have been twilight but for the moonshine, when he went home after the blood was staunched and the hand tightly bound, a carriage drove up to the house and Colonel Allen was announced. I can't say I was ever more disappointed. I had fancied him tall, handsome, and elegant. I had heard of him as a perfect fascinator, a woman-killer. Lo, a wee little man is carried in, in the arms of two others, wounded in both legs at Baton Rouge, he has never yet been able to stand. He was accompanied by a Mr. Bradford, whose assiduous attentions and boundless admiration for the colonel struck me as unusual. I had not observed him otherwise, until the general whispered, 
"'Do you know that that is the brother of your old sweetheart?' "'Though the appellation was by no means merited, "'I recognized the one he meant. "'Brother to our Mr. Bradford of eighteen months ago. "'My astonishment was unbounded, "'and I alluded to it immediately. "'He said it was so, "'that his brother had often spoken to him of us "'and the pleasant evenings he had spent at home.' November 4th, 1862. Oh, what a glorious time we had yesterday! First there were those two gentlemen to be entertained all day, which was rather a stretch, I confess, so I stole away for a while. Then I got the sweetest letter from Miss Trenholm, enclosing Jimmy's photograph, and she praised him so that I was in a damp state of happiness and flew around showing my picture to everybody, Mr. Bradford included, who pronounced him a noble boy and admired him to my satisfaction. Then came a letter from Lily, saying Mother had decided to remain in Clinton and wanted us to join her there. Oh, my prophetic soul, my heart went below zero. Then Colonel Allen sent to Port Hudson for the band to serenade us, and raised my spirits in anticipation of the treat. While performing my toilet in the evening, Waller Fowler arrived on his way to Vicksburg, bringing a letter to Miriam from Major Drum. Heaven only knows how it got here. Such a dear, kind letter, dated 6th of August only. Affairs were very different then, and he said that Lavinia's distress about us was such that he must try to send her nearer to us. And such an unexpected piece of news! Oh, my heart fails me! I cannot fancy Lavinia a mother. Slowly I dressed myself, and still more slowly I combed Anna. I could think of nothing else until I heard Miriam and Mr. Bradford call us to take a walk when we hurried down to them. A race down to the railroad, a merry talk standing on the track, mingled with shouts of laughter in which I tried to drown fears for Lavinia, made the early sunset clouds pass away sooner than usual to us, and moonlight warned us to return. Mrs. Worley passed us in her buggy, coming to stay all night, and halfway a servant met us, saying two soldiers had come to call on us. Once there I was surprised to find that one was Frank Enders, the one I least expected to see. The other was a Mr. Harold. I need not describe him beyond this slight indication of his style. Before half an hour was over, he remarked to Anna that I was a very handsome girl, and addressed me as Miss Sally. That is sufficient. Then Will Carter came in and joined our circle. His first aside was, "'If you only knew how much I liked you last night, you would never be cruel to me again. Why, I thought you the greatest girl in the world. Please, let's part friends to-night again.' I would not promise, for I knew I would tease him yet, and at supper, when I insisted on his taking a glass of milk, his face turned so red that Mrs. Carter pinched my arm blue, and refused to help me to preserves, because I was making Will mad. But Waller helped me, and I drank my own milk to Mr. Carter's health with my sweetest smile. "'Confound that milkman! I wish he had cut his throat before I stumbled over him!' he exclaimed after tea. 
but I had more amusing game than to make him angry then. I wanted to laugh to get rid of the phantom that pursued me, Lavinia. The evening passed off very pleasantly. I think there were some eighteen of us in the parlor. About ten the general went to the sugar-house, he commenced grinding yesterday, and whispered to me to bring the young people down presently. Mr. Bradford and I succeeded in moving them, and we three girls retired to change our pretty dresses for plain ones, and get shawls and nuages, for our warm week had suddenly passed away, and it was quite cold out. Some of the gentlemen remarked that very few young ladies would have the courage to change pretty evening dresses for calico after appearing to such advantage. Many would prefer wearing such dresses, however inappropriate, to the sugar-mill. With his droll gravity, Gibbs answered, "'Oh, our girls don't want to be stuck up.' There was quite a string of us as we straggled out in the beautiful moonlight with only Mrs. Badger as an escort. Mr. Enders and I had a gay walk of it, and when we all met at the furnace we stopped and warmed ourselves and had a laugh before going in. Inside it was lighted up with Confederate gas, in other words pine torches, which shed a delightful light, neither too much nor too little, over the different rooms. We tried each by turns. The row of bubbling kettles with the dusky negroes bending over in the steam, and lightly turning their paddles in the foamy syrup, the whole under the influence of torchlight, was very interesting but then Mr. Enders and I found a place more pleasant still. It was in the first perjury, standing at the mouth of the chute through which the liquid sugar runs into the car, and taking the place of the car as soon as it was run off to the coolers, each armed with a paddle, scraped the colon up, and had our own fun while eating. Then, running along the little railroad to where the others stood in the second room over the vats, and racing back again all together to eat sugar-cane and cut up generally around our first pine-torch, we had really a gay time. Presently Puss Once a Corner was suggested, and all flew up to the second staging under the cane-carrier and by the engine. Such racing for corners, such scuffles among the gentlemen— such confusion among the girls when, springing forward for a place, we would find it already occupied. All dignity was discarded. We laughed and ran as loud and fast as any children, and the general enjoyed our fun as much as we, and encouraged us in our pranks. Waller surpassed himself. Mr. Bradford carried all by storm. Mr. Enders looked like a schoolboy on a frolic. Mr. Carter looked sullen and tried lazily not to mar the sport completely, while Mr. Harold looked timidly foolish and half afraid of our wild sport. Mrs. Badger laughed, the general roared, Anna flew around like a balloon, Miriam fairly danced around with fun and frolic, while I laughed so that it was an exertion to change corners. Then forfeits followed, with the usual absurd formalities in which Mr. Bradford sentenced himself unconsciously to ride a barrel, Miriam to make him a love speech going home, Mr. Enders to kiss my hand, and I to make him, Mr. Enders, a declaration, which I instantly did, in French, whereby I suffered no inconvenience, as Miriam alone comprehended. 
Then came more sugar-cane and talk in the perjury, and we were horrified when Mrs. Badger announced that it was twelve o'clock and gave orders to retire. Oh, the pleasant walk home! Then, of course, followed a last good night on the balcony while the two young men mounted their horses and Frank Enders vowed to slip off every time he had a chance and come out to see us. Then there was a grand proposition for a ride to Port Hudson on horseback, and in order to secure a pledge that we would pass by General Beale's headquarters, Mr. Enders wrapped my nuage around his throat, declaring that I would be obliged to stop there for it, though if prevented he would certainly be obliged to bring it back himself. This morning, however, the married ladies made so much difficulty about who should go and how that we were forced to abandon it, much as we would have enjoyed it. I'm afraid to say how late it was when we got to bed. I know it was almost ten when we left the breakfast table this morning, so I suppose it must have been quite late before we retired. To Colonel Allen's, as well as to our own great disappointment, the band could not come on account of sickness. November 6th. We three girls fancied a walk last evening, and immediately after dinner prepared to walk to Mrs. Brough's, only a mile, and get her to come to the sugar house. But as we put on our bonnets, Captain Bradford, brother of the one who left in the morning, was announced, and our expedition had to be abandoned. This is the third of the five brothers that I have met, and if it were not for the peculiarity in their voices, I should say that there was not the most distant relationship existing between them. This one is very handsome, quiet, and what Dickens calls in a high-shouldered state of deportment. He looks like a moss-covered stone wall, a slumbering volcano, uh, what you please, so it suggests anything unexpected and dangerous to stumble over. A man of indomitable will and intense feeling, I am sure. I should not like to rouse his temper or give him cause to hate me. A trip to the sugar-house followed as a matter of course, and we showed him around, and told him of the fun we had those two nights, and taught him how to use a paddle like a Christian." We remained there until supper-time, when we adjourned to the house, where we spent the remainder of the evening very pleasantly. At least I suppose he found it so, for it was ten o'clock before he left. Just now I was startled by a pistol-shot. Threatening to shoot her, Mr. Carter playfully aimed Miriam's pistol at her, and before he could take fair aim, one barrel went off the shot grazing her arm and passing through the armoire just behind. Of course there was great consternation. Those two seemed doomed to kill each other. She had played him the same trick before. He swore that he would have killed himself with the other shot if she had been hurt, but what good would that do her? Sunday, November ninth. I hardly know how these last days have passed. I have an indistinct recollection of rides in cane-wagons to the most distant field, coming back perched on the top of the cane, singing, Die my petticoats, to the great amusement of the general who followed on horseback. Anna and Miriam, comfortably reposing in corners, were too busy to join in, as their whole time and attention were entirely devoted to the consumption of cane. 
It was only by singing rough impromptus on Mr. Harold and Captain Bradford that I roused them from their task long enough to join in a chorus of forty thousand Chinese. I would not have changed my perch, four mules, and black driver for Queen Victoria's coach and six. And to think old Abe wants to deprive us of all that fun. No more cotton, sugar cane, or rice. No more old black aunties or uncles. No more rides in mule teams. No more songs in the cane fields. No more steaming kettles. No more black faces and shining teeth around the furnace fires. If Lincoln could spend the grinding season on a plantation, he would recall his proclamation. As it is, he has only proved himself a fool without injuring us. Why, last evening I took old Wilson's place at the Bagasse chute and kept the rollers free from cane until I had thrown down enough to fill several carts and had my hands as black as his. What cruelty to slaves! And Black Frank thinks me cruel, too, when he meets me with a patronizing grin and shows me the nicest vats of candy and peels cane for me. Oh, very cruel! And so does Jules when he wipes the handle of his paddle on his apron to give Mamselle a chance to skim the kettles and learn how to work. Yes, and so do all the rest who meet us with a courtesy and, Howdy, young missus! Last night we girls sat on the wood just in front of the furnace, rather Miriam and Anna did while I sat in their laps, and with some twenty of all ages crowded around, we sang away to their great amusement. Poor oppressed devils! Why did you not chunk us with the burning logs instead of looking happy and laughing like fools? Really, some good old abolitionist is needed here to tell them how miserable they are. Can't Mass Abe spare a few to enlighten his brethren? November 10th, Monday. In spite of its being Sunday, no sooner was dinner concluded yesterday than we adjourned as usual to the sugar house to see how much damage we could do. Each took from a negro his long paddle, and for more than half an hour skimmed the kettles industriously, to the amazement of half a dozen strange soldiers, who came to see the extraordinary process of sugar-making. At one time the two boys taking possession of the two other paddles, not a negro was at the kettles, but stood inspecting our work. The hardest part we found to be discharging the batteries, which none of us could do without their assistance. We had no sooner relinquished our paddles than someone announced two gentlemen at the house. While we were discussing the possibility of changing our dresses before being seen, enter Mr. Enders and Gibbs Morgan of Fenner's Battery. No retreat being possible, we looked charmed and self-possessed in spite of plain calicoes and sticky hands. Mr. Enders very conveniently forgot to bring my nuage. He says he started expressly to do so, but reflecting that I might then have no inducement to pay that visit to Port Hudson, he left it for another time. We arranged a visit to Gibbs, and Mr. Enders made me promise to call at General Beale's headquarters for a pass. They will want you to go to the provost marshal's for it, but you just come to General Beale's and send a courier for me, and I will bring it myself. And half in fun, half in earnest, I promised. End of Book 3, Part 9